Okay, folks. If you will, find um, Psalm chapter 26. Psalm 26. And we will we'll pick up where we left off, the second part of last week's study. Um, and uh, in fact, we'll, we'll read that, especially, uh, just go ahead and reread that passage. In Psalm 26, verses 1 through 3, David writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is, is before my eyes and I will walk in your faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach. Father, I pray, Father God, that as rushed as I've been, that you give me a clarity of mind and a calmness of heart, Father God, to be able to say the things that you sent me here to say, Father God. That there would be no element, Father God, of, of the gospel or its application to our lives, Father God, that would be absent from this. I pray, Father God, that you'll bless me to preach the cross through a passage that does not directly speak of the cross, Father. But we know, Lord, they all lead to the cross. So I pray for that now, Father God. I pray, God, that I can be, um, I can be a beneficiary of that also, Father God. That it won't just be, Lord, that I'm checking a box tonight or completing a task, Lord. I don't want to be task-driven by this, Father God. I want to be, uh, Father God, I want to feel your power as much as anyone else does. I want to be in your presence as much as anyone else does, Father God. And I pray, God, that I wouldn't just, just settle for less, God, but that I would... Not demand, because I'm in no position to demand, Father God. But that I would supplicate and petition, Father God, and desire more than anything else. That you would do mighty and amazing and great things here tonight through us, Lord. That revival, God, would true, legitimate, real, biblical revival might break out amongst us, Father God, in a way that only you can do. Because, Father God, everything else is counterfeit. Everything else is fake, Father God. But what you bring is real. And I pray, Father God, that you would bring it. Not because we deserve it, because we know we do not, Father God, but because we need it, we're desperate for it. I pray for a great movement of your spirit tonight, because that's what we need so much, Lord. In the name of Christ, I pray, Father. Amen. Um, look, I, I guess my word's imperative, and it's I'm probably the right one. Um, verse 1 had that imperative, and that was, Vindicate me, O Lord. That is, Lord, um, prove me. Um, Lord, test me. By your standard, judge me, God, was the exact translation. God, judge me so that um, my integrity and my unwavering trust are going to be element. I mean, going to be, are going to be um, obvious elements of who I am. We desire, God, that you do that. That's, that needs to be our prayer all the time. We are those who, who, are, who have to realize that, biblically speaking, that what we are best to do is always to come into the presence of God, whether it be in prayer or devotion or, or here with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and just lay ourselves bare. God, take me and show me where my weaknesses are, Father God. Judge me rightly. And if I'm found lacking, Father God, I'll accept that. I'll embrace the fact that I know I'm found lacking because it's better. Better for, for me, Father God, to be shown my error by you, by a loving Father, whether it be just through His gentle nudging or through the, through the pain and, and the healing of chastisement. It's better for that than for me to go on being wrong. Now, I think that's something that the church has got to learn to do because I think we got away from that. I think we became so set in our ways and so fragile and delicate about some of the just crazy insane things that we're capable of thinking that we didn't want God trying those things because we were really afraid that they weren't right and we would rather live in a fool's paradise a madness 
of, of ignorance that have God really shine light on us. If we're wrong, we need to know. Um, let's just be honest. If you, in, in the life of, of your child, if your child's wrong about something, you tell them, right? You don't let them go on. You feel like there could be catastrophic consequences if they go too far down the wrong path, right? So you want to stop them. We want a loving father to do the same thing for us. Now, I want to explain this a little bit farther. And I said this, stated directly, vindication is from God, clearly, because it involves His judging our lives. Finding them strong and sturdy. Or He points out the weaknesses and He brings the healing of chastisement to our lives. Vindication is a public event in which God finds us full of the integrity and the unwavering trust of the true Christian warrior. At the end of vindication, isn't just the fact that God has judged us, but He's judged us in such a public way that we now have, are stronger because of it. We now can honestly be someone that... I said this By this process, we're brought closer to Christ and held up as an example for others to follow. Now, another thing that, that is at the end of vindication... Biblical vindication, biblical idea of God, God being petitioned, prayed to, asked to judge our lives, is that God would do for us what a lot of us are probably terrified to do. I'll be quite honest with you, I'm a pastor and I'm still scared to do it. And that was having people look at me and want to emulate my life. Now, now I understand, all of us do the same, we all point to Christ, Right? Because they emulate him. But the reality is Paul set an example, which is, you know, be imitators of Paul. Walk Paul's way, because Paul is being judged and being tested rightly. Paul is being found. Paul is being found to be, be righteous in Christ. And so I say to the younger in him, it's okay to follow behind Paul. Now understand, as a Pharisee, it was a situation that Paul was very used to. You used to have the idea of, of, of that being a master... In, in, in terms of teacher and having students that were, going to, that were going to look at Paul's life and see it as an example. They were going to want to do things the way Paul did it. Timothy was one of, going to want to watch Paul and, and lead churches the way Paul led them. Or, or Titus was going to watch Paul and want to lead churches the way Paul led them. There's nothing wrong with that. We've, I've talked about this before. The faith in Christ is always a faith that's passed down, isn't it? Somebody taught us what we know. We learned from somebody. We, we were under preaching. That's part of the terminology we use, right? A pastor preached strongly from the pulpit and we heard and we believed. We didn't go home and make it up on our own. We were taught this. Uh, parents, grandparents taught us. Maybe as, as young men in the faith, we came together and we were, we were responsible to and subjugated to each other. So that we could find God's will through the scriptures in a very systematic and direct way. Now we're, we're used to that. So it's okay for us to see that as part of that aspect of indication. That God might be preparing us for leadership. After all, let's be honest, we're not leaderless, are we? We're not Quakers. We're not a society of friends without pastors or leaders. We're not that at all. We have, we have very well-defined leadership ensconced within the Scriptures themselves. The Bible didn't leave us direct, directionless in this matter. The Bible, in fact, tells us to select out from among ourselves men who would be leaders within your congregation. 
Follow their example. In fact, the, the, the quickest way to find out that somebody doesn't need to be a leader is what? You can't follow their example. They can't be someone that needs to be followed. So, so there's, there's part of the aspect of this that's very public and God does it. But let's look at the next part of this. And that is in verse 2 which says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and mind. It looks like he's kind of um, quoting himself or, or, or he's kind of repeating himself. And one of those things that I'm always wary of within the Scriptures is that God will often use things. And I've said this before. Term, terms that are specific like sin, transgression, and iniquity, the Bible also uses synonymously. When Paul says one, he means them all. And he doesn't necessarily acknowledge the degrees of severity of the word that he uses. Sometimes he's being very specific about what he's talking about. And other times he's using those words synonymously to, to mean the same thing. He's not, doing, he's not using vindication and proving uh, synonymously. And I'm going to show you why. And I believe, I, I pray through the Scriptures. I'm going to do an adequate job of it. Um, proving. Balkan in the Hebrew, it means to examine or try. Brings with it two extremely important functions for the believer. On what I've just called an arduous journey of faith to our final reward. In other words, folks, man, life's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Life in the faith is a challenge. It's not a rose garden. It's, it's difficult at times. Are there many times when, when we feel an urge to stray. Many times when we feel an urge to cut corners, don't we? Many times when we see a, a, a diverging path, we're tempted to take that diverging path and not stay on that straight path that He's given us. The Bible acknowledges this. Acknowledges the temptation with walking this path over a long time. We need God's help in doing this. This proving and examining is going to do exactly for us. And it's got those two aspects. And I want to show them to you very quickly. First, examining and trying the faith of the believer will prove its validity not to the Lord. God does not need to examine me to find out if I really belong to Him. I may not know. I may not have figured it out yet. But He knows completely. It may still be a mystery to me at times, but he knows doubtlessly. I pray and I practice that Christian anticipation of the great rewards that come to someone who has pledged their life and soul to Christ, trusting them, trusting Christ with my sins. I will know completely when things are revealed to me in the end. God always knows. It's not that there's... There's not any doubt. There's not a scintilla of wavering in what God knows about me. There's not a scintilla of wavering in what God knows about you. If you are His, He knows it the way you know your phone number. The way you know your address. He knows it with certainty. There's no chance that He ever forgets it. He doesn't need to prove my validity to Himself. He already knows our hearts more deeply and intimately than we know them ourselves. That's another one of those great mysteries that I just, I'm thrilled by the fact that I'm still a mystery to me. You think you're a mystery? You think I don't sometimes get you or understand you? It's probably true. You probably think that once my man, Tony still doesn't understand. I've known Tony for 20 years. He still doesn't understand me. Where's the deal? Tony still doesn't understand Tony. I still don't. And everybody in this room has had this experience. Probably recently. When after maybe a moment or something happens 
and you in your in your head you're saying, I have no clue why I did what I just did. You overreacted or underreacted. You did something you wouldn't naturally do, and you're a mystery to yourself. I still don't. I still don't understand all my own motivations. I don't understand all my own problems. I don't get it. I just don't get it. God, for me, I'm I'm not a mystery to Him. He understands me with an intimacy that I'll never have for myself. I can't hope to have it with you if I can't get me. He he has, has it completely. The art our hearts more deeply, but to each and every one of us, he has this knowledge. Understand this. I need for God to prove me to me. You need for God to test you, examine you, and try you to prove you to you. The only person with any doubt in this relationship is us, right? He's got no, he's got no doubt. That's weakness. That's uncertainty. He doesn't. He controls it all. If you can hold the world together in your hand, if you can groan and die upon Calvary for the sins of your people, if you can rise under your own power, if you can do that, none of this is a mystery. What, what I need is, is for God to drive away the doubts in me. I need for God to take control of my life and show me who I really am in Him every day. I'm tired. I know there are a lot of people in this room probably experienced doubt. I'm, I'm tired of even an iota of it. I'm ready for God to be so in control that I don't just, I'm not taking steps. I literally feel Him guiding my steps like I were a toddler. Like I were a baby just learning to walk. And he's got my hands held high over my head. In that secure way. Because the toddler can run then, can't they? Because they know you're not going to let go. You're not going to drop them. They're not going to fall. I need for God to do that. I need Him so much to prove me to me. The only way that this is possible is by way of trials. It's the only way it happens. It doesn't happen through some miracle. It doesn't happen through sitting in that pew long enough that, that the rush just comes upon me and the urge comes upon me. It doesn't happen that way. God's going to take me out and He's going to test me. That's going to sound this is a really strange um, uh, way to convey it to you. But I, it's, it occurs to me the best way to do it is, you know, if you, if you go buy a car, you're going to drive it first, aren't you? You're going to buy it sight unseen? Buy it on Facebook? Send them money and go pick your car up. Might get there in some pieces. Right? They might have tried to take it for, you know, one less spin before you took it from them. And they, and they you know, wrapped it around a tree. You're going to get in that vehicle and you're going to drive it. And you're going to check everything out. And you're going to look in the ashtrays and you're going to do everything. Because you want to know. You really want to know. Trials, testing is the only way. Not that God's going to know me, that I'm going to know myself. I'll never know what God can do through me till He takes me and uses me to do stuff. He takes me outside of those, that, those walls that are familiar and outside of that, that arena and that stage that I'm used to and puts me out there not within my abilities but beyond my abilities. Tries me with things that I'll usually fail at doing. I'll never know myself until that happens. Peter tells us that our constant state of warfare with Satan is a matter not of conquering, but victory through resistance. So we're just going to fight. And God's going to show us how. 
And we're not going to necessarily see a lot of victories. But these trials are going to build us up. He writes in 1 Peter 5, 9 for believers to resist Him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kind of sufferings are suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Our suffering unites us with the church universal. We don't fear suffering. In a weird way. It's not even weird. It's just a way we want to think is weird. Because we believe the book so much. Because we believe the power of Christ so much. Because we believe in the love of the, of the cross and, and the, the nailing of sins there. Because we believe of what was done for our benefit so that we could be made new people. That sin was conquered on our behalf and that now we have been given the righteousness of Christ. Because of that, because of that, we now are not only people that believe the book that, that aren't scared of suffering, that want to suffer. God bless me. God, God brings suffering to my life so that I can be proven. Instead of fleeing from it, fearing it, we start to desire something. God, show me what you can do with faith. Our suffering unites us with the church universal and visible, and it's useful for building up the strength of faith that each of us must, each of us must have to endure to the very end of our lives. And I think that's maybe the, the issue that I'm raising here most specifically. A lot of people in this room, I'm looking at, we know each other very well. We know, our, we know each other's lives so well. A lot of us in this room, me included, this has been my year where there's been great loss in your life. Great loss. And then I'll be honest with you, we may have approached that loss with some untested faith, right? We never really had to have it before the way we had to have it right then. We may have felt a little shaky, right? Part of the call here is that God would prove me to myself with trials on a daily basis so that when it's really bad and I'm desperate and I need Him so much that my knees aren't shaking. That I'm, that I'm a man who because of the life God has led me into, or you're a woman because of, God, because of the life God has led you into, you're, you're used to depending on God. You're used to crying out to Him. You know He'll deliver because He's delivered a thousand times. And you've acknowledged His deliveries a thousand times. Literally, we're fulfilling the truth of Hebrews 12.4 where the author says, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We're doing everything to resist the sinful world even until our blood is sacrificially shed. We want that verse to be We want to shed that blood. We say, God, I, I, know, I know it sounds so dramatic. I know it does. Because our lives can be so mundane. Sometimes I think our lives are mundane just simply because we don't pray that they be challenged. We like mundane. We like boring. And that God would be, the, would, would be a God that wants to lead us into greater things than just those tiny things that we're comfortable with. Climb the back of the truck, back of truck in, in a foreign country where the roads are rough. Everybody hears that and goes, oh no, God's not. I'll just say this much. I didn't think God was calling me to do it either. I would have argued you down in 2010 that God was never going to make, call me to do that. That it was wrong. I would have argued you down. And in 2011, God changed my heart completely. Completely about it. I became radical. I was the guy who said one thing one minute and the next day I was saying something totally different. 
You do not know what God plans to do with you. And don't dictate to your God what He will do. It's dangerous ground. By doing this, we'll grow exponentially in the faith. As James writes in James 1.3, For we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. As a church, as families and individuals who love the Lord and have given our lives to be an example of steady faith in a wavering world of chaos, when we're tested, our faith, faith will produce strength, patience, and power. Also, the examining or trying of Christ will enlarge our abilities, enable simple men and women to do unbelievable things for Christ if we will trust Him. I've told you a thousand stories. You've heard all the stories. Men who've never journeyed out of, their, out of their home county hardly. And God shuts down the manufacturing plant where they work and opens a door to service. If the plan stayed open, they just stayed right there and worked to retirement. But what did he do? He had different plans. The problem is with, with most of our lives is this, is that we say we've surrendered ourselves to God's plans, to God's plans. What we're really hoping is that God's going along with our plans. We're really hoping that we've got this scoped out just right and that God likes it. We've turned in the document and we hope we're going to get an A. We hope we've decided what God wants. And to be honest with you, I can just say from my, own, from my own life, how often I've been so wrong. How often I've been small-minded. I never dreamed God would do what He was really planning on doing. I tried to tailor my dreams to what I perceived my abilities to be. And I come to find out that God didn't care about my abilities. He wasn't preparing me for something I could do by myself. He was preparing me for something that only He could do through me. Only God could do it. The examining or trying of Christ will enable our abilities and, in law and in, will enlarge our abilities, enable simple men and women to do unbelievable things for Christ if we will trust Him. If we'll pray accordingly, if we'll follow the Bible's example of men who've trusted the Lord with their lives. Now this, is, this gets weird. Just a few more minutes. It's not going to take that long for me to, to go through this, I hope. But here's the deal. Um, I remember 2000. Year 2000. Um, lots of us in this room remember the year 2000. Some of us, barely. Barely. I was ordained in the year 2000. I was ordained. I'd served for a while. My ordination was in 2000. So 20 years ago was my ordination. 20 years ago, many months ago, 20 years ago was my ordination. And the Christian world was overwhelmed by one book. And that was the prayer of Jabez. Which is made fun of now. Made fun of. People laugh about it. Now, my words here are going to be, I get it. There was an insane amount of hype over the book more than over the passage. Now, what I'm going to say to you is this. The passage is pure, unadulterated God's Word. And we're going to treat it that way. The fact that it spawned CDs and Bible studies and everything else in the world was kind of a Bruce Wilkinson thing. Not so much a, a Christ thing. Okay? But the prayer of Jabez was, it literally took the Christian world by storm. There's a lot we can learn from, and I want to share it with you real quickly. I don't want to overlook any of its truth. It's about all the issues I do desire to communicate at least one thing that Wilkinson wrote in the book. I'll never forget reading the book. 
in, in a book that, that I said took the Christian community by storm. He said, as God's chosen, blessed sons and daughters, we are expected to attempt something large enough that failure is guaranteed unless God steps in. In a book that, to be honest with you, probably God's was a lot of nonsense. That is an overwhelming statement. Overwhelming statement. More often than not, we do what? We attempt things that we're pretty sure we can do if God doesn't do anything. God's actions make it easy. Make it pleasurable. That's, that's where our ambition for Christ is. It's just an inch above our heads. Something we can easily reach. And that Wilkinson clearly says this, and I think it's, 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 it's absolutely true. We need to be taking on things that we will fail at if God does not deliver. Not things within our grasp, but things that have so far exceeded our grasp, there's no way we should even be talking about it. Because I tell you, if, if, if anything infects the church more than anything else, it is small-mindedness. What do we want to do? Nothing too risky. We are risk-averse. Because if we risk, oh my goodness, we might lose. It might go bad. And guess what? We won't die. We'll be fine. We might get embarrassed a little bit. But we've become so risk-averse in our culture. This 20 years ago, it just got worse. That most churches would never dare to try to do anything that, simply put, they can't do by themselves. They can't do with just their, their collective power. Scriptures record the prayer of Jabez. 1 Chronicles 4, 9-10. Jabez was the most honorable, well, excuse me, was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. Boy, it sounds bad. It starts off really bad, doesn't it? Jabez hurt. He was a painful delivery? I don't know. Just a bad time for mom. And she names you after her travails in childbirth. An inauspicious beginning for Jabez. But then in verse 10, Jabez called upon the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my board and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. So succinct. And when you read those chapters, it just stands out. Like it's already highlighted. Because the rest of the chapter is just really not like that. Consider first that this is Scripture. Therefore, it's truth and must be given that kind of respect. Not blown out of proportion, but treated with the weight that God gave it. Because God gave this a lot of weight. Aside from the truth, hardwired into His name, He was a product of His mother's travail or suffering. Like a lot of us, you ever felt like you, had, you were born maybe under a bad sign? It's a secular way of saying it, but you know what I mean. Or there's always this cloud over you. Like everywhere you went, you had your own rain cloud that followed you around. You ever felt like that? I bet you spent, you spent seasons feeling like you were snake bit, haven't you? Everybody has. Everybody has. Jabez, is, the snake bitten nature of Jabez was wired into his name itself. Child of suffering. Child of travail. The declaration was honorable in comparison to his brothers. He's better than his brothers. The prayer is specifically enlightening for God's people. I'm going to find three things very quickly. One, he called upon the God of Israel. Do not gloss over that. When it got time to call out, 
Jabez didn't try a lot of avenues. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying idolatry, so to speak, for our culture. But what I'm saying is this, is that how many times in our lives have we turned to our God last and not first? How many times have we tried to solve the financial problem or solve the health problem or solve the family problem or solve the church problem ourselves through our own efforts and we didn't pray first? And we realized halfway through the enterprise that we really had neglected God in a substantive way. All the time. All the time. My goodness gracious alive, how many times in this church have we had a problem and we started talking to ourselves before we started talking to God? I would say almost every time. We have to be reminded, be reminded that we should petition our God about this. There's no, there's no wavering for Jabez in this. Jabez calls the God of Israel. He, he, he wants his life to change. What does he do? He called the God of Israel. He wanted to see a, a different, a brighter day. What does he do? He calls the God of Israel. He cries out to God. He knew one name, one name that mattered, one name that would change, one name, folks, and I, that will save. And he called that name. Called that name. The first name out of his mouth was, was our God and not the last. Now, when all other avenues were exhausted, when he tried to do it on his own so long and failed so much, he called to God first and not last. Vital. Absolutely vital point. Jabez cried to God was forceful and specific. He didn't indulge any sense of ingenuity, but called out to the one God, the only real, authentic, saving, and blessing divinity. As Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's one. Now, understand, for Jabez, there was a world of idols and there was the real God. For us, there's a world of idols and there's the real God. Some of our idols don't have names, but we still live in a world of idolatry. We still live in a world where people will firmly believe and espouse the belief that you can, with earnestness, with sincerity, believe anything and find the path to glory. Jabez did not make that mistake because the Bible does not declare that mistake. The Bible declares the exclusivity of Christ Jesus, the exclusivity of the cross, of the finished work on the cross that saves the souls of men. That only the name of Jesus, only the blood of Jesus, only the sacrifice of Jesus will save us. Only that. It doesn't make, Jabez doesn't make the mistake that so many people make of trying to do it themselves. He knew he was short. He knew he couldn't make it. He cried out to the one who could. Jabez took new chances and petitioned the only one who was capable of helping him to achieve his goals. The only one who could do through him what he knew must be done. Two, and I believe this is, if anything else, folks, I believe the prayer of Jabez is a revival passage. It's a revival passage. Needed for the church. When we, were, uh, when we met with, uh, uh, during our associational meeting with, with Dr. Parker on, on Sunday, it was kind of a closed thing because of a COVID and all that kind of stuff. And Dr. Parker, state executive committee director, he was asked one question. We had time for question and answer after he preached. And then we asked good Baptist, we asked one question. And the question was, does he have any idea what the needs of the church are going to be, you know, continuing through COVID and post-COVID? And his, his answer was, was, all, was as if he knew the question was coming. And I don't think he did. Revival. Revival. I remember having that first meeting with your pastors. 
when this happened, and we knew how, we had a, just an inkling of how bad it was going to be, our fear was the church was going to be decimated by it. As of right now, there's probably not a state, there's probably not a church in this state that is, has returned to more than 75% occupancy. 75% of where they were to start with, not occupancy, of where they were to start with. And as I've used before, guys, I remember the economic downturn of 2007, or 2006, 2007, because I came here in 2007. All right? Tithing went down in, during that economic downturn, and it has never returned to where it was. 13 years later, it's not back to where it was. Not even close. And that's not just here. That's in, in any church you can find. And I'm thinking to myself, after this, how long will it take for us to come back from this? Decades? Decades? Dr. Parker said, we need revival. More than anything else, churches need revival. This is what we need. We need revival. We need revival in this church, not just because of COVID. All COVID brought out was the fact that we needed revival. That's all it did. We need revival. We need it desperately bad. I believe this is a revival verse. Now, I want to define that as best I can hastily. It can be added to later. Freshly turning to God is the substance of real revival in the life of any believer. Now, what did I say? I said freshly turning to God. Now, I want to explain that. It is the spiritual quickening of the chaya, that word in the, in the Hebrew, which is the word for revival, which means to make alive, to be made alive. James describes this encounter in James 4.8 when he writes, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. In other words, God didn't go anywhere. Who, who left? I did. God is stable and unmovable. A fixed point in the stars. He didn't drift. I drifted. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You, you double so what's my problem? Sin and, and my mind. I've lost control of my body. I've lost control of my mind. There's where sin lies right there. And it's corruption. Revival is not a fresh wind from, from God because He is never stale. He is, he is immovable. He never changes. We are the ones who have strayed and must be refreshed by turning back to the Christ. Look, bereft of any sentimentality or emotionalism in light of the apparent struggles of Jabez, blessings were the theme of the revival in the heart of Jabez. Jabez is seeking blessings. The blessings that go with revival. So revival isn't just a feeling. It comes with something. Revival isn't just a good feeling. Because too often in churches, we get you know some, some goose pimple moments, and we call it revival. We get some moments where everybody's happy and feeling good and hugging on each other. And crying a little bit, we call that revival. It can be the seed, the start of a revival, but revival changes lives not just momentarily. He says this in verse 3. He says, enlarge my border. Now, nothing is more debatable than what Jabez intended in this statement. Certainly could have intended for the blessings to be in land and capital. The kind of matters in which the Bible often... Uh, dictates God's practical wisdom. At the same time, that would be just far more pedestrian. God always means more than I'm, to be honest with you, I'm using willing, willing to give Him credit for. Because I'm small-minded again. 
What's apparent from the amount, the small amount of context was that Jabez desired a blessing from God that would result in greater blessings from the Father. So the blessing of revival that Jabez was crying out for was going to give him things that he didn't even know to pray for. It's not just going to be a fresh feeling. It was going to be something radically different in his life. He wanted to embrace the glory of what God would do through his life. As Jeremiah said so famously, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That sounds to me like when God takes over my life, when He has substantively saved me, and now He rules me and reigns over me, that God has things planned for me that I would never do by myself. That God is doing something. It's not saving me to plop me back down and let me just sort of wander through life. Like the proverbial chicken with the head cut off. But that God has saved me because He now has intentions for everything. If I'm living for me, I'm taking back my life from God. I'm stealing back my life from God. Something that God purchased with the blood of Christ. I'm now stealing back to use for my benefit. Jabez desired the future plans of God. The full attention of the Christ upon his life, doing with him as only the Savior and Creator of all mankind can do. What does he say? God is going to do this, and God's going to do things I can't even imagine. So when, when Jabez says, God enlarge my territory, Jabez doesn't even know what God means by that. God knows what he does. God knew what he would do with Jabez from the foundation of the world. And when he did it, I guarantee you this much. I don't know this from the pages of Scripture. I can just imagine that even Jabez was caught up in the wonder of what God was willing to do. He never dreamed it. He never dreamed it. Take charge, God, and do with my life what you want was the cry of this and every faithful man and woman. Take charge. God, I've been running this in the ground. Take charge of this. Lead me, God. Lead me, God. I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want to try to lead you anymore. You lead me. You, God, be the leader and let me be the follower. By doing this, surrendering completely and begging God to do what, what glorifies and honors Him and not me results in two very important benefits in my revived life. In the revived life of Jabez. First, first, I have realized that every real revival in the life of church or believer is a revival that begins in prayer... And results in doing things radically different than ever before. If I, if, if I have experienced revival, I'm not going to go back to the old way. God has brought revival to my life to radically change my direction. Because revival is not senseless emotionalism that we can have. And sometimes it comes from God and sometimes it just comes from our, our, our circumstances. The revival is a movement of the Spirit of God that does a work of God. It starts because we pray and petition God for it to happen. But when He does it, He is doing something to us and in us and through us. Jabez was different after this event. At the same time, he gained protection from God in every avenue of his life. Not ease or calm or, or relaxation, but the protection of God for mind, soul, and body that enables a man or woman to serve their Lord with a steady hand and a focused intellect. What revival brought to the life of Jabez was something so wonderful and so unique. And that was 
that he was still going to have a hard life and there's still going to be challenges and this world was still going to be wicked and twisted and evil. But he was going to be able to face it without shaking. He was going to be able to face it without being overwhelmed by doubt and fear. The work that, that this prayer did for Jabez wasn't just to bring new things to his life externally, but to bring new things to Jabez's life internally. He saw the world differently. We'll see the world differently when God revives us. Our eyes are changed. It starts with a prayer and it starts with a song and it starts with a message. But its manifestation comes in the fact that it's changed us radically. Really changed us. I've been to a lot of revival meetings. I don't know if I've ever seen revival like that. Like I believe the Bible defines. But it's what we pray for. What we pray for. We do this when Christ is really in control of us as He should be. All this happened because Jabez prayed. It's not, don't forget that. Everything happened wonderfully because Jabez prayed. Jabez said a prayer. He cried out to God and God answered his prayer. I'll just be quite blunt with you. In many ways, Jabez dared God. God, how much will you pour out on me? How much will you bless me, Father God? How much will you lead me into that brings glory to you and none to me? What will you do with me, God? Man, I was praying this prayer today. Today I was praying this prayer. Not because I think I'm somebody, because I realized I've settled so often in my life for being nobody in Christ. Because it was safe. It was safe. I said, God, do things with me that I never would dare do with myself. That I don't have the confidence to do. Because we can't be limited by our confidence. We, can, we should only be limited by God's will. God responded to his prayer by testing him, by expanding him, by giving him more to do, by strengthening him in his resolve, by guiding him through issues, and ultimately winning victory through Jabez. And he will do the same thing through us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach. Father God, I pray, Lord, that I, I preach rightly, Father God. And I pray now, Father God, that you will do a work in us, God. We need this, God. We need this so desperately. Every church I know needs this, Father God. Real, legitimate, true revival, Father God. Not a meeting, not a time on the calendar, Father God, but a great movement of your spirit, Father God, that literally shakes walls, that tears down obstacles, Father God, that throws down strongholds, Father God, and frees your people, God, to really be your people. I pray for that today, Father God. I pray, God, I'm willing to pray that, Father God. I beg you, God, that your people will hear and they will pray for this too. That we will honestly and legitimately pray, pray God, that you'll do something in us that only you can do, Father God. Only you can work this. It can't be counterfeited, Father God. It can't be faked. This is real, Father God, and we pray for it now. We love you, Father God. More than anything else, we love you, Father God, because you've given us Christ Jesus, whose precious blood, Father God, has taken away our sins. That you've called us out of darkness, Father God, and that you're using us now, Father God, to be the light of the world. We pray for that now, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.